Well, good morning, New Life. We are into our second Sunday of the new year, and it has uh, been hard for me uh, knowing where we're going this year and uh, what we're going to be talking about in the coming weeks uh, to keep silent about it. Uh, but uh, I don't want to let the cat out of the bag. We've got some surprises for you. Uh, next week, of course, we have our elders forum uh, where we will then discuss a little bit uh, about where we're going, why we're going there, what we're doing. And uh, this morning, uh, the message that I have is more or less a primer on the series that we're going to start in a couple of weeks. So we're going to be looking at the New Testament um, to prepare ourselves for a study in the Old Testament. And so uh, this morning, um, the topic is not one that we'd like to think about or discuss or even read, but it's necessary. And um, uh, we're going to be looking at John chapter 15, uh, primarily chapter 16, but a little bit in John chapter 15. It's kind of wild to me that after spending a whole year in the book of John, I find myself still gravitating back to the book of John. Such a wonderful book, excellent book. So the Bible tells us that our citizenship is in heaven, that this world is not our home. Now, this is something that the church has believed for centuries. But depending on where you live, I think it takes on greater importance and significance. If you are living in a part of the world where you are being persecuted to the point of death, this becomes a truth that you cling to because you realize that should they take your life, Life has really only just begun for you. Here in the West, not so much. But the Bible says that we uh, are citizens of heaven. Put another way, we're, we are aliens and strangers upon the earth. Um, I remember the first time I, I ever read that, you know, we're aliens. And, you know, I kept thinking about little green men. Um, and, uh, and, you know, as you study the scripture, you realize what, what the writer is talking about, what Peter is saying here. And it's really saying is that as Christians, we, we kind of march to the beat of a different drum. We serve the one true God. Our values and our priorities are radically different from the world. At least they should be. And it's no wonder then that it puts us at odds with the world. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. We have been injected into the world in order to be salt and light and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the world takes a dim view of that. You know, from the very beginning, I mean, 2,000 years ago, as the church got started, you know, the world has persecuted Christians. Christians have been martyred, put to death for the last 2,000 years. Now, here in the West, we've been somewhat insulated uh, against that type of persecution. We're unfamiliar with it. But 
This is the type of persecution that the early church faced, that our brothers and sisters in Christ have faced and are continuing to face throughout the world. But I believe, as do many other pastors, teachers, scholars, Christians, that things have changed. And they are continuing to change and at a very rapid pace. For decades now, the forces of secularism and pluralism, even paganism and liberalism have infiltrated the church in the minds of believers so that many today who profess faith in Christ could hardly be called Christian. Many churches have succumbed to the world's pressure and abandoned historical Christian doctrines and positions. Chief among them, the rejection of the Bible as the Word of God. They may, they may call it the Word of God, but in the end, they do not believe it is the inerrant, infallible Word of God to us, the final authority in life and practice. We make our feelings the final authority. We make our experiences the final authority. We make culture the final authority, not the Bible. But the Bible sits in judgment on us, not the other way around. Now, this rejection of, of this central core belief has led to the rejection of many other beliefs and doctrines. Rejections of the doctrine of the creation of the world, of sin. There is the rejection of the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, his second coming, and the doctrine of hell. And then, of course, when you start messing with the scriptures and and, and basically attribute it to the writings of, you know, patriarchal men living in a culture where they oppressed women, this, that, and the other thing. I mean, you can change all sorts of stuff. And so now you have, you know, sexual mores that have changed. Now sex before marriage is acceptable. It's not considered a sin. Homosexuality is now embraced and celebrated, no longer viewed as sin. There is the redefinition of marriage there is radical feminism and egalitarianism within the church. And then there's universalism. I'm okay. You're okay. We're all okay. We're all going to make it to heaven. We're all going to the same place. We all serve the same God. No, we don't. Real Christians, and you have to underscore the term real Christians today more than ever are swimming upstream in a godless culture. I mean, just I, I just jotted down a bunch of things here. I, I, this list could have been, I think, endless. But you can't watch TV without being bombarded with godless messages. And I'm not talking about the programming, I'm talking about the commercials. 
I mean, you know, it used to be, you know, but the commercials today not only are trying to get you, you know, to accept something that is unacceptable, but to celebrate it, to rejoice over it. Think of the stuff that our kids are being exposed to now in the public schools. Parents' voices are being silenced at school board meetings. Governments and social media now tell us what speech is acceptable and what speech isn't. There are government mandates that violate Christian conscience, forcing, forcing Christian health organizations and doctors to provide services that go against their beliefs. Many Christians are being reprimanded or terminated for doing the right thing at work, for, li- for being ethical for doing what everybody ought to be doing, but because they're not, you're the odd one. And you, and you bring conviction to them, so let's get rid of the conviction. Let's get rid of this person so we can enjoy our sin. Then there's, of course, lawsuits against Christian business owners. Uh, we could spend all day there. Think about the Christian bakers. That's one of the ones that co- comes to mind. Coaches that are being fired for praying on the field after a game. If you believe the Bible, you are labeled an uneducated religious nut job. If you believe that men and women are created equal but have different roles within uh, the home and within the church, you're labeled misogynistic. If you believe homosexuality is a sin, you're labeled homophobic. Talking about sin is now considered hate speech in many places. And the list goes on and on. And just the other day, as if I thought it couldn't get any worse, um, apparently you can now be arrested for praying silently in your head. Because that's what happened in England. There was a woman who went to, uh, outside of an abortion clinic, stood across the street, silently, by herself, praying, and she was arrested just for being there, never opened her mouth, never said a word, no, no big protests, whatever. She was just, you know, they asked, are you praying? Yes, in my, in my mind, in my head. And they arrested her. This is the world in which we live today. And folks, um, hate to tell you this, we, we, we live in a culture where it's getting progressively Worse, harder and harder for us to live out our faith without facing some form of hostility or persecution. And it's going to get worse. I like what uh, Tim Keller said. Pastor Tim Keller says, we are entering a new era in which there is not only no social benefit to being a Christian, but an actual social cost. In many places, culture is becoming increasingly hostile towards faith and beliefs in God, truth, sin, and the afterlife are disappearing in more and more people. Now, culture is producing people for whom Christianity is not only offensive, but incomprehensible. We we live in a post-Christian culture. People take offense at the things that we say. But the reality is is people have no clue what we're saying. They're biblically illiterate. They haven't read it. 
They just follow the talking points. But this is the direction. You know, there was a time when we looked across the ocean to England and to Europe, and you can do this not just in matters of faith, but basically continental Europe is where many things begin. Many strains of thought begin. Many trends begin, and then it filters. It takes a while to filter across the English Channel to go to England, and then it takes even longer for it to filter over here to the United States. But we used to look over there and say, what, Europe has become such a godless you know, con country, continent, all the countries there. You know, we, 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 we start looking at, at that, and we go, wow, I'm so glad we live here. And of course, you see the same thing was happening in England, but now it's happening here. And according to a Pew Research study of current trends, it is estimated that Christians in this country will be a minority by 2050. Now, I don't know how they define Christian. I got a feeling it's, it's you call yourself Christian because I really think we're already a minority, We've always been a minority. It just hasn't always felt that way. We've now become like Europe, like England, just not quite as far along as they are, but it's coming. We are now starting to discover what the early church felt and what many of our brothers and sisters felt and are feeling in other parts of the world today. We're beginning to understand that if we are to truly follow Jesus, there is a price that we will have to pay. Now, it, it would be easier for us to run and hide. Um, we've tried that in the past. You know, the fundamentalists at, at the turn of the, the 20th century, you know, um, adopted that. They, they kind of threw their hands up in the air and said, what's the use? This is a losing battle. And that's why you have all your seminaries located up on like Lookout Mountain and some other place because they thought if you, if you, if you can't beat them, separate from them. And that's what they did. Whereas the liberals said, if you can't beat them, join them. The fundamentalists said, we'll just separate from them. Well, we can run, we can hide, we can cave to the, to the pressure, repudiate our beliefs, but that is not an option for true believers. Instead, we need to ask ourselves, how do we live out the Christian life in a culture that hates us? And that may, that, that, that may if that sounds harsh to you, if that sounds over the top to you, it's only because... good chance you haven't pushed the envelope. See, the world won't bother you if you're silent. <laughs> the world won't bother you if you don't share your faith, if you don't evangelize, if you don't talk about Jesus, you're not going to face persecution. But if you do, and if you have, you know what I'm saying is true. Think about what Jesus said. Don't take my word for it. In John chapter 15, Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, 
Because of this, the world hates you. So in light of this, what can we do? What should we do? Well, I think we must choose to live out our faith courageously, trusting God to protect us and provide for us until the day he calls us home. Or if you would rather take Jesus' words, take courage. I have overcome the world. Let me pray. Father, this was a long introduction. Good news, it's a short sermon. <laughs> Lord, we just thank you that, you know, we don't need a, a dissertation. We just, we just need your word. We need you to speak to our hearts. And this morning, I pray that you would encourage us, that you would help us to understand the truth of your word, that we might find application to our lives and um, Lord, that we would be obedient to it and the better for it. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would be our teacher and our guide here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I probably should have told you in advance the introduction was going to be fairly long, but uh, I, I am excited um, to introduce um, Courageous as our theme for the year. Um, it's just the songs that we sang here this morning, um, songs that we will be singing, uh, just everything seems to be dovetailing. The scripture that Trevor read this morning, um, we, we believe that God is calling us to live courageous, faith-filled lives in 2023 and beyond, but starting this year. We want to live courageously in every area of our lives. We, we want to be courageous in our trust and in our obedience to God. We want to be courageous in our witness, in our participation in the church, in our prayer life, in our giving, and in our serving. And we're going to be coming back to this theme over and over uh, this year. We're going to provide some practical opportunities uh, for you to flesh that out. We're going to provide some tools for you to help equip you for the work that God has called you to do. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that next week during our elders forum. Two weeks from today, we're going to start a new sermon series. And we're, I'm going to continue using this theme, Courageous. And we're going to be looking at the first seven chapters in the book of Daniel. So we're going to go to the Old Testament. And at the same time, we're going to be reading a book called Brave by Faith. It's also kind of interesting that snow camp is brave. I love it. Brave by faith. This is a book put out by Alistair Begg. It's a small book, a little book. I actually brought a copy here with me. So as you can see, it's small, not a lot of reading, but it's good. Real good. And then there's a study guide that comes along with it as well. And so while we are in our series in the book of Daniel, we're going to be reading uh, Brave by Faith because he covers the same chapters. So there'll be some redundancy, but we're trying not to read the book on Sunday mornings, but to expound those chapters and then come together in a life group to discuss it and to process it. 
and to, to see, you know, how does this apply to my life? What is God asking of me? How do I need to respond to this? Um, you're not going to get a better deal than this. If you go to truthforlife.org, you can purchase the book for six bucks. Uh, you can pick up the study guide for two bucks. Um, and so I would encourage you to do that. They're in the middle of inventory right now, so there's a little delay getting it out. I would recommend, though, this afternoon, order your book so that it'll get in in time when we start the study on the 22nd. Um, if you'd like, you can also purchase an audio book uh, and an e-book. Also very cheap to do that. Uh, but you can do that at truthforlife.org. And so if you're not in a life group right now, this is the perfect time to get in one. If, if for nothing else, just for the study, get into it. Get a feel for what it's like to be in a life group. Um, to begin with. But we're going to be spending about eight weeks in those seven chapters. Let's go back to John. Let's jump ahead one chapter. Chapter 16. In verse 1, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. See, Jesus is preparing them for his departure. And while Jesus was with them, he watched over them. He protected them. He insulated them against the persecution that they would eventually face. And he says in verse 1, I, I, I have said these things to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. To be kept from falling away because, let, you know, let's face it, you know, um, when it comes to leading somebody to Christ and inviting somebody to follow Christ, you know, that's not a real great sales pitch. Hey, come to Jesus, you know, you might be killed if you do. And then if you go down a little bit further in chapter 16 to verse 32, and by the way, I didn't mention today, I'm reading out of the New American Standard Version as opposed to the ESV, and I'm doing that for a reason. But in verse 32, it says, Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. See, Jesus tells them in advance, you're going to be scattered. You're going to run away. You're going to abandon me. Yet, he says, I am not alone, for the Father is with me. If that's enough for Jesus, it ought to be enough for us. I know I have struggled 
I'm sure many of you have struggled sometimes feeling like we're all alone. Like we don't have a friend in the world. And, and Jesus understood that all his friends were going to scatter. They were going to run away. They were going to desert him. And yet he knew he was not alone. We need to know that too. That no matter what it is that you're facing, you could be a single person wondering if you're ever going to get married. You could be somebody who's widowed. And, and, and the hurt is tremendous. You are not alone. The Father is with you. Christ is with you. The Spirit of God is with you. And if you are a part of a local church, the body of Christ is with you. But why did Jesus tell him these things? Well, we already mentioned that. He said to keep them from stumbling so that they might not be taken by surprise when this happened. But if you look at verse 33, you've got the real answer there, that they may have peace. You know, when the world gets turned upside down, when your life gets turned upside down, when you're facing persecution, when you're experiencing pain and suffering and everything, sometimes you don't think straight. Sometimes, you know, anxiety gets the best of you. Worry gets the best of you. And Jesus tells them these things so that they might have peace. That they might not succumb to fear and give up. And, and from our perspective, from the human perspective, how can they have peace when they know what's going to happen? When they know, you know, that, you know, Jesus is going away and they're going to run away. How can we possibly have peace? And I think it's because deep down they, they knew Jesus was, was more than just a great moral teacher. He was more than just a great prophet of God. He is God. He knows not only what will be, he determines what will be. He is sovereign and in control of all things. And the disciples' sin, their failure did not take Jesus by surprise. His death was not an accident. It was all a part of God's redemptive plan to rescue us from our sins. And, and I want you to look at verse 33 because this is where I'm gonna conclude the message this morning. Is just looking at verse 33 and bringing to your attention two truths Two gigantic truths that Jesus shared to strengthen his disciples and us. And the first truth is this. And it's not one you're going to like. In the world, you will have tribulation. You now, some of you may go, okay, well, that's not too revelatory. I, I know that. Do you really? Because when you look at the lives of many people, you would think that this has come as a total shock. There, there, there seems to be, even amongst Christians, something within us that is shocked by the fact that there is pain and suffering in the world. That, that, there, that bad things happen to good people. That, that, that somehow this shouldn't happen. I shouldn't be experiencing this. I shouldn't be going through this. I shouldn't have gotten that diagnosis. I shouldn't be treated this way. 
We need to come to grips with this truth that Jesus has made very, very clear. In the world, you will have tribulation. It's a given. And the word tribulation literally means pressure or affliction or trouble. It's an oppressive state of distress or adversity. It's a given. We live in a fallen world. So let's not bemoan the fact that we suffer. It's a result of sin. Not necessarily your particular sin. It could be. But we live in a fallen world. And the entire creation has been infected and affected by sin. So that it groans and travails. As long as we're in the world, we're going to have to contend with evil and we're going to have to contend with the effects of sin. Because we live in a fallen world, there is pain and suffering, oppression, injustice, guilt and shame. Because of sin, there is relational conflict, hatred, anger and violence. Because we live in a fallen world, there is depression, discouraging diagnoses, sickness and death. And all All of these things and much more is what Jesus meant when he said, in this world, you will have tribulation. And people often use pain and suffering as an excuse to not believe in God. And what they don't realize they're doing is they're actually arguing for the existence of God. When when people say, I can't believe in a God that would allow, you know, babies to be aborted and people to suffer and to get cancer and for wars and this, that, and the other thing. I just can't believe in a God that would allow all of that. Why not? Well, let me rephrase that. Take God out of the equation. There is no God. You still have suffering. You still have pain. You still have all these atrocities. You still have injustice. You still have, all right, So what are you going to do about that? Well, I don't like it. Why? Why not just accept it as the way that it is? You see, pain and suffering is only a problem if you believe in God. And not just if you believe in God. If you believe that God is good and that he is all-powerful and could do something about it, but for some reason or another hasn't done something about it. Or he's not all-knowing. He doesn't know what's going on. If you believe that there's an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God, then you have a problem. Then you can ask the question, why is there evil and suffering in the world? But if there is no God, then there is no problem. Just accept it. It's just the way that it is. There's no rhyme or reason to it. It just is. But deep down, that does not satisfy. We know deep down, things ought not be this way. But as C.S. Lewis said, where do we get the idea of ought? Where do we get this idea that the world ought to be any different than the way that it is? He goes on to say, you don't know to call a line crooked unless you know what a straight line looks like. 
So how do we know that something has gone wrong with the world unless we have some sort of idea of what the world ought to have looked like and ought to have been? We, if you don't believe in God, you shouldn't expect things to be any different than the way they are. In fact, you ought to expect things to be a lot worse. But God and his people have been a restraining influence against evil in the world. That's why things aren't as bad as they could be. Now, having said all of that, there is a special type of tribulation that is reserved only for Christians. And that's persecution. And it comes in many forms. I've already mentioned some of them to you. Remember what Jesus said in John 15. He said, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Why? Well, it's because those of us who follow Jesus are endeavoring to live like Jesus to have his character, to have his priorities. In, in, in fact, we're trying to be little Christs. That's what the word Christian means, Christ-like. And so if they hated Jesus and you're endeavoring to be like him and to live like him and to talk like him, and everything, then they're going to hate you too because you remind him. You remind them of Jesus. That's why Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So that's the first truth. And if that's all we had, it'd be a real bummer. If, if, that, if, if it just ended there, in the world, you will have tribulation. End of story, period, dot, close the book. That's it, Wow. But it's not how it ends. Jesus goes on to give us another truth, and he says, I have overcome the world. The word translated overcome here in the New Testament is always used in the context of spiritual victory. Of spiritual victory. So Jesus is talking about victory over the forces of darkness, victory over the enemy. Uh, uh, hey, but, but, but then you have to ask yourself, how can Jesus say this before he ever went to the cross and rose from the dead? I mean, the job's not finished yet, right? Well, I think Jesus can proclaim his triumph over the powers of darkness because the victory is assured. It was never in doubt. There was, there was no chance Jesus would fail. Now, I, I, I know that, that sometimes there's a debate there because of his humanity and this, that, and the other thing. But, but I want you to know that not only do we have Old Testament prophecy and Jesus' own words, but we have 2,000 years of history. We get to look back. We can see the, the full picture. God is omniscient. He is all-powerful. The devil has nothing on him. And so this plan of God's was never at risk. 
He will accomplish what he sets out to do. And so here, as I look at this, I, I, I think he, he's able to proclaim his triumph over the powers of darkness because the victory is assured. And he has given us a, a token of this in his earthly ministry, right? He already demonstrated his power over sickness. He already demonstrated his power over the demons. He already demonstrated his power over death in the grave. And he knew that after he was crucified, he would rise again. And that's why Jesus could say, I have overcome the world. Jesus is not a victim of sin. He is a victor over sin. Jesus defeated Satan. He broke the power of death and hell. Jesus is our victorious Savior King. And that's why Jesus can tell his disciples and us, take courage. Or if you have the ESV, it says, take heart. Jesus commands us to be courageous, to be bold in the face of danger. We are to be confident or assured of Jesus' victory over the powers of darkness. Living the Christian life is not going to get any easier. I think it's going to get progressively more difficult but therein lies the opportunity. We can live courageously by faith in Christ in a world that's controlled by the evil one. And because Jesus won the victory, we too can walk in triumph. Because he overcame the world, if we place our faith and our trust in him, we too can overcome the world. That's why I think John wrote in his first epistle in chapter 5, he said this. He said, uh, for uh, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Why is this? Because this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So have you believed on the Lord Jesus this morning? Is he your Lord and Savior? If not, I urge you to surrender your life to him. Give him your life today. Be an overcomer. If you have done that, I want you to know you don't have to live in fear. You can have peace because Jesus has overcome the world. He said, take courage. I have overcome the world. Apostle Paul put it this way, and we sang about it this morning in, in Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? I want to challenge you, uh, each of you, to identify areas in your life where maybe um, you have um, you've allowed fear to take root. And, and I want to I challenge you to reject that and to stand on the truth of God's word and to courageously live by faith. 
And I want to encourage, you know, you all to go to truthforlife.org. Pick up uh, the book, uh, the study guide, order a copy of it. Um, and then if you're not in a life group, plug into a life group. Um, like we said last week, what if, what if this year we got serious about being the church and being in community with one another? Next week, um, we're going to have a little surprise uh, for those of you who like to take notes. Um, so don't miss uh, next Sunday. Um, the elders forum will be something you'll want to hear, but also we'll be giving you a sneak peek as to where we're going this year. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for our time together this morning. I, I thank you for your word to us and the encouragement that it is. And Lord, I know that many of us um, are going through great difficulties, whether it be physical ailments, relational conflict, um, difficulties with, with finances, um, Lord, spiritual struggles, even depression. Um, but Lord, you are greater than all these things. And Lord, I pray that you would grant us faith, that we would put our faith and our trust in you and believe you that what you have said here that we have read this morning, that that's true that you have overcome the world. And by placing our faith and our trust in you, we too can overcome. We can take courage. We can take heart. We can be cheerful and confident that you are in control. And Lord, I pray that this year will be a banner, banner year for each of us and for this church. And I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.